Well, not exactly the cheeriest thing you've ever heard, probably. Uh, that last line, purge the evil person from among you. It's always a good note to end on. Um, we're actually going to practice that right now. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, don't worry, it gets better from here, I, I promise. Um, this is one of those passages uh, from Paul where you, you read it, and maybe for the first time, and you think, who is this guy, Paul? And is he as big of a jerk as he sounds in this passage? And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I recently had a conversation with someone uh, here at the Leewood campus, and, and this, this person was having a conversation with a friend of his about Paul. And uh, he, they were talking about how our church is in this series on, on 1 Corinthians, which is written by Paul, and his friend said this, and I think it was, it's something we all need to hear and wrestle with, especially this morning. He said, this friend, at no point in my Christianity have I ever been comfortable with Paul. He said, Paul is sexist, he's judgmental, you name it. In fact, he continued, I blame him for making the church this judgmental, guilt-ridden entity it has become at many levels today. And honestly, I, I, I read that, and my first thought was like, I get it. <laughs> now, I don't think Paul is those things, but just, I mean, just read these sentences out loud. I'm going to do it right now, and tell me how this strikes you. Uh, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Or how about this next one? When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And when we think of grace and love and acceptance taught in the Bible, we don't often point to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, do we? I know that I, I don't. But here's the thing, okay, as we start, here's the thing. This is a passage about sin. And more specifically, it's a passage about the church's role when there's sin in her midst. That's what this passage is about. It's not something we enjoy talking about, but there it is. And here's the question we need to wrestle with as we approach this passage on church discipline. That's kind of the big idea here. If you find yourself uncomfortable or confused or even frustrated by Paul's words here, and we're going to try to explain them a little bit as we go along, but if that's where you are, you've got to ask yourself, and I need to ask this of myself, is the problem that I am more loving and gracious than Paul ever was? Or is the problem that, that I don't take sin and rebellion and evil as seriously as Paul did? Those are your two options. And Paul is teaching us, and really the whole Bible is teaching on sin, is that if you, until you truly understand the nature of sin, how destructive it is, how disruptive it is to God's purpose in your life and to God's people, then you will never have the perspective to deal with sin lovingly in a community of people. Until you understand what sin really is, you will never have the perspective to deal with it well and wisely in community. In other words, if we don't take sin seriously, if we don't deal with sin, it will deal with us. It will destroy us. And not just as individuals, but as a church, as a community of believers. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we uh, take uh, this case study in, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians and, uh, and apply it to ourselves? Well, Paul's going to uh, give us some direction there. And if you haven't turned to 1 Corinthians 5, do that now. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And as you're doing that, I want to recap just a little bit of where we've been in 1 Corinthians so far. So basically, chapters 1 through 4 of this letter are Paul laying a groundwork, a framework 
for almost everything that will follow, including our passage today. So Paul has been hammering, if you've been with us, this idea home again and again and again, that belief in the cross, belief in the cross should make Christians the least proud kind of person in the world. The cross and your pride are incompatible. And nothing deceives us and the church like the sin of pride, which is really the heart of the Corinthian problem, which is why Paul starts there. We're all experts. The Corinthians were no different. We're the same way. We are really, really good at convincing ourselves that we are okay when we're not. We're all really good at that. We're so good at looking in the mirror and telling ourselves lies. We're, we're, we're all experts. And the Corinthian church is the prime example of what happens with, when this kind of pride, this spiritual pride, is not only permitted in the church, but is celebrated, is encouraged by it. And so after walking, uh, working, I should say, to remind this church of our tendency toward pride, Paul begins a new section here addressing specific problems that this church is having, how its pride is expressing itself in specific problems. So the first is this situation in chapter 5, which we'll get to next week. It's about defrauding and lawsuits within the church. Paul will address that. And then after that, how the church has theologically justified sleeping with prostitutes. And I, I, this is just things to look forward to in the next month. So <laughs> Paul isn't afraid to go there. Uh, the, and the first thing that he wants us to see in chapter 5 is this. It's the first principle from this text is that sin should break our hearts. Sin should break our hearts. And this message, this idea is completely lost on the Corinthians, and you know it, because you look at verse 1 and Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So, so here's the gist of the situation. There is a man in this congregation that Paul's writing to that is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom. And you're like, you kind of wrap your mind around that and say, I'm never complaining about Christ's community again because I know it could be so much worse. Um, Paul says this kind of promiscuity, it, it's not even accepted among the pagans. And now that word pagan, it, it has a negative connotation now. At the time, it just reflected the pluralistic society that the Corinthians lived in. Everybody had a god they prayed to. Everybody had their favorite. And so I'm okay, you're okay. Kind of, he said even the pagans aren't okay with what you're doing. And it's difficult to overstate how devastating that statement is. <laughs> the Greco-Roman society was not known for its sexual uh, puritanism or traditionalism, which before I get into it, just as an aside, this should give us comfort as Christians to not freak out as we look at our own cultural landscape. Uh, we tend to think that our problems, the sexual revolution of the 1970s, for example, is this brand new thing that the world's never dealt with before, and that's just not true. There's nothing new under the sun, Okay. But getting back to the Corinthian context, prostitution in that day was a normal part of everyday life. It was not uncommon for men to sleep with young boys. It was not uncommon to have practice orgies. Women were used and abused regularly with little legal or social consequence or recourse. There's a reason that sex and sexual purity are mentioned in almost every one of Paul's letters and all the New Testament letters. It's not because uh, they were uh, puritanical. Uh, um, it's because it was a huge, the world that they were writing into is not terribly unlike ours. Sex was a huge problem in this Gentile world. They did not have the Judeo-Christian worldview on what sex was. And here's how one, just to give, just to 
give you an example. Here's one contemporary Greek writer uh, who's writing around the time that Paul was around. Here's how he described the good life in Paul's day. He said, Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. That's their view of sexuality. So that's the context this Corinthian church is in. Those are the pagans around them, and the pagans are looking at the church and saying, whoa, you've crossed a line. That's how bad this is. But what's interesting in our passage is how unfazed Paul is by the sin in question. He's not surprised that there's sin in the church, and we shouldn't be either. Think about it. We are a group of people, and we've said this before, we are a group of people who've self-selected to come here and declare to the world, my sin is so bad that God had to die. Okay, so of course there's sin in the church, but what's worse than the sin, at least in Paul's eyes as he writes, is that the church is okay with what is happening. The church is fine. In fact, they're proud of it, and I'm not even sure how, but they are. They are taking God's grace for granted, they're abusing it, and in a very real sense, that is much more devastating than the sin itself, as bad as that sin is. And Paul calls the church, he says, you're arrogant for not dealing with this sin, which is interesting. Because in, in our modern context, we, we tend to think that labeling something as sin or, or calling someone out on what they're doing, we, that's an arrogant posture. Stop judging me, right? But in, Paul says just the opposite. He says, in the church, to ignore sin, after everything God has done, after everything you, you know about what God did to save you from sin, to not confront it is arrogant and wrong. And I hate to say it, but we'd, we'd struggle with this too. And not to the extreme that the Corinthians did, uh, but there are things in this book that we call the Bible that we would rather not talk about. We'd rather not wrestle with. We all love 1 Corinthians 13, right? We hang it in our bathroom. Love is patient. Love is kind. But we don't like chapter 5 of the same letter by the same person. Purge the evil person from among you. Have nothing to do with the sexually immoral. And Paul says, you ought rather to mourn when you see sin in yourself and in those around you. And when you see it in those around you, take it seriously. It doesn't mean we should throw people out of the church. Uh, This is a specific case study, as I said. This is one example. This isn't something Paul did in every case, nor is it something we should do in every case as a church. But the principle is, take sin seriously, even the sins of others, as an act of love toward them. And we struggle with that. And, and Paul David Tripp, he puts this principle so well. He's an author and a pastor. He, when he's writing on the, the topic of rebuke, he says, please don't, under, don't misunderstand. True love is not offensively intrusive or rude, but the Bible repudiates covering sin with a facade of silence. It teaches that those who love will speak, even if it creates tense and upsetting moments. The truth is we fail to confront not because we love others too much, but because we love ourselves too much. And I read that and I was like, ouch, because most pastors are compulsive people pleasers. So it's that, that's why we do half of what we do. Um, and so that, that, that struck me. Ought we not rather as a church to mourn than to ignore Shouldn't this break our hearts? Aren't we called to a depth of love that will risk relationships, that will risk comfort and tranquility for the sake of a brother or sister who needs intervention? Is that not who we are? Paul says that's who we are. That's what we're called to be. 
Because if we don't help others deal with their sin, it will deal with us. But still, even granted, why does Paul feel the need to kick this guy out of church? Even if we take uh, sin seriously, as Paul is telling us to do, and even if it breaks our hearts, why does he feel the need to remove this person from fellowship? Doesn't that seem extreme? Well, that's our second point on sin. First, it should break our hearts, but it is also incredibly destructive and contagious when left unchecked. Sin is contagious and it's destructive. And Paul puts it this way, starting in verse 3. He says, For though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, there's a lot in that section. So we're just going to take this one step at a time, okay? So the first thing we need to realize is that the person in question here, this guy, he is not sorry about what he's done. He isn't wrestling with the morality of sleeping with another married woman, let alone his stepmother. He thinks it's fine. Paul has already told him to stop, perhaps in a previous letter. We don't know. And the dude, he just doesn't care. He's like, Paul, whatever, I don't care. And this helps explain, in my mind, at least a little bit, why Paul just goes nuclear in chapter 5. This isn't the first time they've had a conversation about this. And also, as difficult as it may sound, Paul sincerely desires, you can't miss this when you read it slowly, Paul sincerely desires that this person is to be removed for his own good. It's difficult to know exactly what Paul means when he says, deliver this man uh, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, but Paul often uses the word flesh to mean sin or sin nature. And there's good evidence that by Satan, what Paul means is the realm of Satan, which is the world, so put him out into the world. So the sense of the verse is that his exile, this guy's exile from the community, is, it might be just what he needs to be convicted of what he's doing and restored and saved on the day of the Lord, which is the day of judgment. So we see here that Paul's actions, his first motivation for what he is doing is restorative. His goal is to restore this guy. And the second thing, also immediately following it, we can't miss this either, is that his, he's doing this to restore, but he's also doing it to protect. He's doing this to protect the church as a whole. Now, I can't bake worth a darn, which I know is probably really hard for you to believe, but I understand what leaven is. Paul points out that only a little bit of leaven, once worked into the dough, it's impossible to remove. It doesn't take much leaven to change the fundamental chemistry of the dough. If you've ever added leaven to dough by mistake, you have to start over. You can't get it back out. There's no going back. Sin, Paul's saying, is like that. It is that contagious, especially unrepentant, blatant sin, like Paul was addressing here. It has to be isolated and removed for the sake of the whole. And uh, this, the principle applies. You've all probably read if you give a mouse a cookie, right? You've read that story. If you give a mouse a cookie, he's going to want a glass of milk, and for the milk, he needs a straw, and then he needs a napkin, and before you know it, he's asking for scissors to cut his hair. 
in your bathroom. And I've just summarized the whole book for you. You don't need to read it anymore. So <laughs> same principle. If, you give, if we give what we think is an inch to sin, it will take a mile. There is a slippery slope to sin that we have to take seriously. It's that contagious and it's that destructive. And this guy's lifestyle is killing him and he doesn't know it. He's on a pathway toward separation from God, which is part of why Paul's actions are so drastic. And if you're sitting here and you're thinking sin isn't fatal, if you're thinking, Andrew, you're overstating the case, nobody dies from sin. I want to, that's why everybody dies. The only reason there is death in our world is because of sin. We are all terminal. Death would not exist if not for sin. And every sin is an invitation in the biblical worldview. Every sin is an invitation for death to reign in your life again. That's what sin is. Sin is that contagious and it is that destructive. And some of the most evil and heinous things that have ever happened in human history began with one sin left unchecked, left unrepented, that snowballed into a catastrophe. That is what sin does. It's what it does. Like a cancer, untreated, it spreads and it devours everything in its path. So cleanse out the old leaven. We have to deal with sin or it will deal with us. But Paul's not so naive to, to think that dealing with sin well is done in a vacuum. Context matters. There's a story behind every situation. And, and here's kind of how Paul unpacks that in, in verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater or, or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul's saying we need to view sin and how we deal with it differently depending on who's involved. And specifically, Paul says there are three people that you, that you need to deal with, that, that sin's going to come up with these three people. You need to have a plan for these three people. The first is yourself. The second is non-Christians, outsiders, Paul calls them. And the third is with fellow Christians, with fellow believers. So first, with ourselves, start here. We always start here. That's a biblical principle of whenever you're going to confront someone, you start here. Whenever we talk about someone else's sin, before we can have a conversation, to use Jesus' metaphor about the speck in their eye, we always have to acknowledge the log in our own. What are the sins that are killing you or that have the potential to kill you? Have you thought about that? This isn't just about some weird relationship with a stepmom. Any sexual sin, greed, idolatry, a reviler, which is a slander or a gossip, a, a drunkard, a cheat, because sin, a sin of any sort, of any sort, not just sexual sin, any sort is an invitation for death to reign in your life. How we love to harp on the sins out there, I do this, while things like greed and gossip flourish in here. And if sin thrives in your heart, you're destroying yourself, every relationship, and it affects the whole church. It does. 
God says it's not okay to sleep with your boyfriend or to live together before marriage. It's not okay to look at pornography or to blow off steam gossiping or to let greed and materialism go unchecked in your life. Sin is not okay. And before we look at them and complain about them and point out their mistakes, I have to go back and look in the mirror and come to grips with the fact that I and they have a lot in common. No one's sin is okay. No one's sin is okay. Before we talk to someone, before we confront someone else, we've got to ask, am I even confrontable? Do I have people in my life that have permission to confront me if I need it? Have you given permission to someone to do that? Say, call me out. I'm going to hate you in the moment, but I need it. I need that from you. For those of you who are married, is your spouse even allowed to do that? This is one of the reasons that church membership is such an important thing, such an important concept, because when you're a member of a church, you are giving permission to the church to call you out. And by God's grace, and hopefully with his grace, we will call each other out. So start with yourself. Next relationship with non-Christians. Paul Paul says, here's how you deal with that. If you are not a Christian and you are here this morning, I'm so thankful that you're here, seriously. And I have to apologize that we are starting you off on a really hard topic. <laughs> but we, are not, we don't try to duck hard things here, okay? We move through the Bible in sequence, and this is, this is where we are. We're supposed to look at your sins, says Paul, we, very differently than we look at our own. We have a different worldview than you do. We have to acknowledge that. And if you've ever met a Christian who was more of an expert in your sins than in their own, I'm sorry, I apologize. <laughs> But it doesn't mean that we don't take your sin seriously, and it doesn't mean that, that it's not destructive. Paul, Paul calls us to a relationship with you of sincerity and truth. And if sin is death's reign, we need a rescue. And we're convinced that that rescue can only be found in the person of Jesus. Sin alters relationships. It destroys families. It puts the human experience in bondage. And we believe sincerely there is something so much better for your life than sin. Jesus wants to give you life, the life you were created for in the first place. And I know sometimes we Christians can come across as judgmental and backwards, and I, I get that. We have a lot to learn, but we really do love you and sincerely believe that God's design is best. And frankly, we don't have anything else to offer you. So stick around, if you will, stick around. Okay, last relationship. We need to deal with the sin of Christians. How do we do that? And this is the trickiest one. Paul says with Christians, specifically with this Christian, he, he needs to get kicked out of the church. That's what this looks like here. Don't even eat with him until he repents and comes back. And again, I know that sounds really harsh, but don't forget that this is a, this is a case study. This is not a clear command of scripture. This is a specific situation at a specific time in a specific place. And we don't have all the information here, so we have to be careful To assume that this is what all churches are supposed to do in every case of sin is not founded in this text, okay? Case studies don't let us off the hook either. They force us to look for principles and how we deal with sin within the church. And we've already mentioned a few of these. I'll recap them quickly. The first is Paul. We see that Paul's real first motivation is restoration. Best case scenario for Paul, this guy leaves the church, one day wakes up, realizes I've made a huge mistake comes back, asks, asks the church for forgiveness, asks God for forgiveness, and he's welcomed back. That's, that's what Paul wants to happen. But he also wants to protect. 
There's more than just this, this guy's feelings at stake here. The church is on the line. This could lead others to become comfortable with their sin, with sin in their midst and allow them to say, well, at least I'm not sleeping with my stepmom, so I'm okay. And that sounds silly, but that's exactly what would happen in this church if this guy were allowed to stay. It would justify all kinds of other things. And also, the outside world needs to look at the church and see Jesus, not some guy sleeping with his stepmom. So God's reputation is at stake. There's lots of things to weigh. So what might restoration and protection, what would that look like today? Might it involve asking someone to leave the church, similarly to Paul? Well, maybe, but maybe not. In our modern context, we have, we have to deal with something Paul didn't. People can just go down the street to another church without any redemptive space in their life to consider what they've done or what's been said to them. But we all have to remember, okay, as we think about this, there is a big difference between shunning someone and disciplining them. Shunning is spiritual abuse and it's punitive. Its goal is to shame you, not to restore you. But discipline is different. At the heart of discipline is love. And we all, we all understand this when we think about it because we, we understand that for young people, young people need discipline throughout their lives as they mature and grow up. Because they often lack the perspective on what they are doing and how dangerous it is. But the goal of discipline is maturity and relationship, not punishment. No parent I know says, man, I love disciplining my child. Nobody likes to do that. But I know many parents who have said, and there's wisdom to this, I love my child enough to discipline. We don't grow out of our need for this kind of discipline in our lives. In fact, as adults, someone told us somewhere along the line that once you grow up, you don't need help with your moral choices anymore. I don't know where that came from. Our choices have more far-reaching consequences and are more destructive and can affect whole families and companies and children and churches. We we have to have even more checks and, and accountabilities than young people do, though we often don't seek them out in our lives. We don't value that voice in our lives. As followers of Jesus, we have chosen, part of what we've done is to, we have chosen to be accountable to Christ and the words of Scripture and to our spiritual family, the church. So how do we lovingly confront in the church? Here are five quick guidelines that come out of this text, that come from, from Paul's thinking here. So five quick guidelines. The first is, it's not rocket science, but understand the situation wisely. Understand it wisely. Paul goes out of his way to point out that different people in different situations require different responses. Someone who is confessing a sin, they know it's wrong, and someone caught in a sin and they don't think it's wrong, right? That requires two very different responses. A, a, a mature believer versus a new believer. A, is this a public sin or is it a private sin? Is this an illegal sin? Does the state require a certain response here? Or is this a sin against God's law? It's a moral sin. They all require different responses, which is another way of saying they require what the Bible calls wisdom. They require taking scripture and applying it to a new situation where there isn't a rule book for you. So understand it wisely. Second, check yourself. Check yourself. What are your motives in confronting? In many ways, the biggest difference between biblical loving confrontation and spiritual abuse is the motivation behind what's happening. Are you envious? Are you self-righteous? Are you vengeful? Or do you love this person? And, and none of us will ever have perfect motives in anything we do. 
But we need to wrestle with this as we confront others. Where's, where are my motives? Am I the right person to even have this conversation with this person? Listen, and, and Paul makes this point elsewhere. In Galatians 1, he says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual, that's mature, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And that isn't just tempted in the sin that this person's in, it's the temptation to judge, the temptation to think you're better than this person. Watch yourself. Third principle, conf- confront with love and humility. So if it comes to that, confront with love and humility. You are confronting as an equal, not as a superior. None of us can stand before God on our own two feet, not one person. We all needed infinite grace to be saved. There is no difference between you and the person in question from a moral standpoint. You just might understand your need for grace a little bit better than they do in the moment. A community group is a place where this can happen. Not every group is there yet, that's fine. But those are the kinds of people we should be allowing to confront us lovingly, even as they support us in difficulty. And Jesus gives us even more principles on how to do this well in Matthew 18. I, I can't go there right now, but if, if the sin is between two people, for example, Jesus says, then the conversation should stay with those two people at first. And if, and if more need to get involved, use wisdom moving forward. I invite you to look at that text later this week. Okay, fourth principle. Recognize the power of consequences. The power of consequences. And this is an important one. This guy in 1 Corinthians 5, he, from a moral standpoint and a spiritual standpoint, he had already abandoned the church and everything it believed in before he got kicked out. In a real way, Paul was simply honoring that choice with a real consequence and removing him temporarily, saying, you, you chose this. And sometimes the best thing you can do is give someone exactly what they want in the hopes that they will find themselves hurt and disappointed with their own choice. If we aren't careful and wise, the church, and and I've seen this, the church can enable sin instead of confronting it. If someone has a problem and you keep bailing them out, they won't feel the consequences of what they're doing and they won't change. They won't even consider it. If you ask any professional counselor, at some point, we have to honor people's choices and allow natural consequences. Finally, fifth principle, share Jesus with them. Share Jesus with them. And there comes a point sometimes in in any confrontation with a person, even if they don't realize it, that they've abandoned their faith. They've walked away. They're just not interested anymore. And again, in Matthew 18, Jesus says to treat this person as a Gentile or a tax collector, which is not to say treat this person like scum. It is to say treat them like someone who has not accepted the gospel, that they don't get it. Treat them that way. So share Jesus with them. Remind them of salvation by grace through faith and remind them that any real relationship with God demands all of our lives and all of our choices, not just the ones that come easily to us. And that list could probably go on and on, but I hope you're getting a sense of the heart behind what Paul's doing here and the kind of confrontation of sin that we as the church are called to do. And obviously, without a healthy, loving church with these healthy relationships, without being known by someone here, none of this makes sense, and it's just mean. But we need to, we need to remember this. If, if we don't deal with sin 
and deal with it well, it will deal with us. And none of us is perfect at this. No church is perfect at this. Christ's community isn't perfect at this. But Jesus promises, he promises to use our feeble words and our feeble efforts in dealing with our sins together. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I wanted to just point this out. We aren't sure if this is the same guy from 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul's talking about. It might be. But we see that confrontation can really help people. And Paul says in this second letter to the Corinthians, Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, he has to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So this this works. It can work. God can use it. Paul says, bring him back. I've seen it with my own eyes. God uses this stuff as weak and as fragile as it is. And and perhaps more importantly than that, we have to remember that Jesus has dealt with our sin forever. Paul reminds us here that Jesus is our Passover lamb, which means he died for our sins, which means we we don't have to fear exposure. We don't have to fear confrontation when it comes, not if it comes, but when it comes. God loved us enough to confront us in Jesus. That's what's happening on the cross to show us what our sins really cost. And there's nothing anyone can find out about you or you can find out about yourself that Jesus did not already know and did not already pay for. There's no sin so heinous, so taboo, so bizarre, or so gross that Jesus' death and resurrection has not provided forgiveness and victory for. Nothing. So I can deal with my sin, and you can deal with your sin, and together we can deal with our sin because we know its days are numbered. And in the meantime, let us love one another enough to stay the course and to allow each other to confront and to challenge when that's necessary because love in the biblical worldview takes sin seriously. Love is not antithetical to confrontation. Love takes sin seriously. And if we ever doubt that, we have to remember, don't forget what it cost God to deal with your sin. It cost him everything. And I'm going to pray for us now. And I want us to be thinking as we respond in in song, I want you to be thinking, where do you need this message in your own life first? None of this works unless we start here. So what in your life right now could destroy what God is doing? What in your life right now could bring down a whole church? What is that thing in you? Let's pray to that end. Father, call to mind for us the places in our hearts where we need confronting. Where is there darkness in us that needs light? Where is there pain in us that leads to destructive habits? Where is there pride in us where we need the humility of the cross? And Father, by your love, show us where we need extra grace every day to keep the faith. And over these things, we declare victory in the name of your Son, Jesus. There is no darkness that can overcome your light. There is no evil that can defeat the cross. And there is no sin that can overpower your love and grace for those who believe. May your power be manifest in our church in how we deal with our sin. 
May we be a community of people who are not afraid of the truth, even when it is hard and even when it hurts. And may we live by Paul's principle in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I, of whom we, of whom Christ's community is the foremost. Amen.